good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll talk to a local playwright about her world premiere play that tells a very personal story about growing up in Chicago. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review another world premiere that has some Silence of the Lambs vibes. Later in the show, I'll catch up with Roger Ebert senior editor Nick Allen to talk about his favorite scary movies of the year. And I'll check in with a local author who's created a picture book based off his experience performing at a White House Halloween party. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. It's been a big year for Chicago-based playwright Nancy Garcia Lauza. This past summer, she was one of five artists to win a Joyce Award. The monetary prize will allow her to create a new piece of theater with the National Museum of Mexican Art. And earlier this month, her play Bull, a love story, made its world premiere in Aurora as part of the Paramount Theater's new Bold series. I recently caught up with Loza to talk about the journey this Chicago set play has taken from idea to stage. What was the inspiration for for writing Bull, a love story? I get a nudge at the conclusion of each play, and I listen to it. You know, I've done this this entire thing, this entire dive into writing and, and wanting to stage these stories. I've just been led by nothing but my gut instincts as a self-taught writer. And when I, when I feel the impulse, when I finish a play, I always feel like a little impulse of what the next one is. Um, and I, I usually just jot it down on a post-it note and throw it on a wall. And I had finished working on a different play that was an audio drama called Those Lake D92 with Jeremy McCarter as my producer and Make Believe Association. And unfortunately, that project got um, shelved because of the pandemic. But I was sitting in my driveway like you know, finding out that we were, you know, hours ahead, we were not going to go into production and into rehearsal. And I still knew at that time, I was like, yeah, but I'm getting that little, you know, that, that little thing, that little thing in my ear and in my head, that's telling me what the next play is. And I was very preoccupied with that specific project with capturing the sound of Lakeview. My family had been immigrating to Lakeview from uh, Jalisco, Mexico for almost 50 years back and forth. And when I walk up and down those streets, I, I miss it, right? It's like a bittersweet encounter with a place that I knew really vibrated with uh, the lives of people that, that I knew, that I felt, that I loved. And I walk up and down those streets, and especially like Ir- that Irving Park area, and I'm like, this happened, right? We were here. And I feel like this sort of bittersweet sense of, of loss. I wouldn't even say it's nostalgia or sentimentality, as I do try to steer away from that. I want to be able to bring to life stories about people that I loved and cared about. And, you know, it's, I draw inspiration from all kinds of folks that I run into, including family. And um, this story in particular, I was like, I really want to tell, I want to tell a love story. I've been waiting for love story like this for a hundred years, the kind of love story where a man doesn't conquer love, a man isn't entitled to love, but a man has to earn a really um, earnest 
and really sort of sacred kind of love that looks many different ways, not just romantic, but like the love of his family. And in setting the love story, I was like, I don't, I want to see this love story nowhere else except that Lakeview where I was so artistically and creatively immersed in already. You know, I was just, I was in that wavelength and I wanted to continue to churn out the stories that lived in that world um, that had been so close to me. What about that neighborhood maybe distinguishes it from other Chicago neighborhoods? One of the things that really set it apart, and I'm very obsessed with capturing in these in what is going to end up being my Lakeview cycle. Bull, a Love Story is the second installment in a body of work I hope to put out within five years. Um, what I really hope to put out is just the uniqueness of the Pan-Latine experience that happened on in this neighborhood. Right. Puerto Ricans became more Mexican. Mexicans became more more Puerto Rican. Cubans, same thing. Like there was just something there is something in that in that neighborhood that it didn't you know, it was sort of like a like a clash and a mesh. Right. So love stories happened. Fights happened. But there was a lot of vibrancy. I experienced like a, a lot of joy and violence living side by side in a very specific era of Lakeview that is completely sort of gone and unrecognizable now but it mattered to me and it did feel Shakespearean and it did feel like the stakes were high and it did feel like life and death and extraordinary things happen to everyday people including your sort of everyday kind of miracles and I want to be able to speak to that. In the play Bull, the main character, has just gotten out of jail after serving some time for dealing drugs, and he's trying to resume life with his family, but is quickly finding out that things have changed while he's been away. Let's listen to a clip from Bull, a love story. Parole's not free. These guys get excited about a violation. Look, all I'm asking for is a garage. You don't use it. There's a car in there. You walk to work. The park in the street. It's a new car. The salt, the snow. It's August. Not forever. So we can make this work. It doesn't work. It has to. Okay, you just showed up and you're changing everything. Nothing's going to change for you and Amy. I didn't answer and you just showed up. We were supposed to talk. I tried. You didn't answer. Yeah, and it didn't stop you. So I want to talk. I mean, mean, we're kind of past that. No, I was working while you were deciding this for all of us. It's a year. I can't do that. That was a scene from Nancy Garcia Loza's world premiere play Bull, A Love Story, which is running at the Paramount Theater's Copley Theater right now. So obviously a, a very personal project for like the, the main character, Bull. Is that something where, is there a particular person that you draw inspiration from or is it just an amalgamation of different situations from your life? For me, it's an amalgamation. I always say, you know, I think like I've been writing in my kitchen for 12 years. So if people walk into my kitchen and they start talking, I always say, disclaimer, I'm a writer. You know, I've, I've been blessed with like an insane memory. Um, so I often remember lines, zingers, dialogue. Um, but I don't I don't go research specific lives. You know, I'm driven by story, I'm driven by character. And luckily I've met all kinds of really, really amazing and vibrant and colorful characters that the well is deep for me. You know, it's always an amalgamation of of many people and at the same time it's still rooted in something very personal. This was actually presented virtually last year through the Paramount's new play development program. Did you have a sense that this was going to get a a physical in-person production? My experience with Paramount um, was really, really special. I got a call from Amber Mack, the New Works director, 
we'd never met before. Um, you know, Chicago's a special place to so a fellow writer passed my name along. And um, I got that call and it was initially it was just like really just getting to know each other. I think the pandemic and the solitude that I experienced in the pandemic, it made me more stubbornly resolved to focus on the work, the, the stories that already lived in me. I told her, I'm like, I really just I want to write a love story. I know the I know who the protagonist is in this love story. I've named the play. I've named the protagonist. I have an idea of who the characters are, but I have not written a word of the play. I have just a feeling that this is what this is the next story that I want to tell. And it's sort of been incubating in my head for a while. So I was like, I totally understand, especially since you just met me. If you need to, you know, go away and think on it and, and get back to me if I, you know, if it's if we're going to dive in and take this leap, which is let's workshop, let's workshop a play that has not even been written um, with the Inception Project. Or if, you know, we want to do the safe thing, which is that I dust off an old play that needs that needs work and revision. So I was very excited when I heard back and they said, Nancy, we'll, we'll work on whatever, it, wherever your inspiration is right now. This is a completely creator-driven process. So let's, let's go with the idea you're, ready, you're most excited to dive into. And some plays are ready to pour out. And I set out to write this play. And I, I wrote this play in 30 days. After we did the public reading, the, I got the best call you could ever get, which was that Paramount Theater, within two weeks of the public reading, decided they wanted this play and they must have this play in their season. And I really can't tell you enough that never happened. That had, it had never happened to me. And I know that that is, that's a very unique thing for that to happen. So it's very affirming. You know, I'm being very stubborn in my resolve to tell a very specific kind of story. It's very close and personal to me. That is a very like specific kind of lyricism that I experienced in a specific area of Chicago in a specific era that is like the, the very Caribbean-Mexican experience that unfolded on Lakeview in the 80s and 90s. And it landed, and it, it deserved a stage. I've always believed that it deserved a stage, even before I wrote the first page. And I was lucky to work with folks that felt it and also helped thrust it into its next life, which is bringing it to life. That was Nancy Garcia-Loza. Her play Bull, A Love Story, is making its world premiere in Aurora as part of the Paramount Theater's Bold series. It's running through November 20th. You can find more information at ParamountAurora.com. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, sir. It's hard to believe this is our last segment of October. Playwright Jennifer Rumberger has said she wanted to write a play that asks how women of different generations deal with the threat of male violence. What emerged is the world premiere play, The Locus, which is running at the Gift Theater through November 19th. Rumberger says she also took a little inspiration from Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein. In The Locus, the focus is on an FBI agent who returns to her Florida hometown to help catch a serial killer while also navigating some past trauma of her own. 
And I know there's more details that the dueling critics will fill us in on. But first, initial impressions. Carrie, what did you think? You know, I thought it was really stuffed with a lot of good stuff. And ultimately, I really liked it. It made me feel, and maybe this is something, I'm not saying that only women feel this sense of threat. There's certainly a lot of marginalized groups that feel that. But it really tapped into something, I think, very primal about what it means to grow up with an awareness that violence is almost embedded in the way that the world, at least potentially, will treat you. There is a little bit of an element, I would say, of Silence of the Lambs here, just on the surface, because the character of Ella, the FBI agent, you know, has come back to her hometown. She is trying to solve, you know, the case of a serial killer. And in order to do that, she finds herself tapping into parts of her psyche and parts of her history that she has forgotten. She herself survived a violent assault as a teenager, and that's one reason she's never come back to Vero Beach, her hometown, or has come back only reluctantly. She came back to take care of her dying father. Um, So there's a lot of family history here that she's trying to unpack, as well as trying to, you know, race against the clock to solve these crimes. I think it's fair to say that maybe not everything that's dished up on the plate gets equal resolution, but in terms of how it worked on me, I think that this play is, is you know, very effective at saying, look, this is, you know, to, to live within, a, you know, as a female in, in America is often to feel that you are targeted, to often have to go through the world with a whole set of checklists in your mind. Is, is this a safe place? Is that a safe place? Do I trust that person? For that reason, I think it's, a, it's, it's quite a successful play. Jonathan? Well, this is the kind of play that I like. It has depth. It has complexity. It asks audiences to pay attention mm-hmm. and to think. And I really like that's what, you know, it has weight and size, as we say. Uh, the framing device is the serial killer uh, murder mystery, but that's not what the play is about. Uh, it is about, uh, as was already stated, three, generation, three generations of women. Uh, it is set in Vero Beach, the real town of Vero Beach, Florida, on the Atlantic coast. Um, and the principal relationship among the women is uh, are the sisters Ella, the FBI agent, returning to town, and Maisie, who is the one who has stayed and uh, dealt with family and raising a daughter. And uh, it, it's fair to say that Ella and Maisie have a lot of baggage. There are no men physically present on stage, except for a young police officer working with Ella and the police chief. And he's largely there to provide comic relief, not entirely, but largely. Mm-hmm. And so the men, which are obviously an important focus of the locusts, they are phantoms, mostly men from the past who have shaped these women in some way. The issues range from obvious sibling rivalry and guilt to the palpable fear throughout the community, to ways in which women nurture and empower each other, and finally to what the word home means to us, whether home Mm -hmm. refers to a specific house or the town in which we live or in which we grew up. As Carrie said, it's a very full plate, and the balance of the issues between them isn't quite well honed enough. A little out of balance, But the play certainly has intelligence, and it certainly has fervor, and the characters are appealing, even the darker ones, the characters are appealing and well-shaped. Rumberger takes her time peeling back the layers of the relationships, especially between the two sisters. 
which results in something which is really increasingly rare these days, a new full-length two-act play. And yeah. I really like that. I did as well. And I think, you know, if anything did get a little bit of short shrift, it might be some of the old tensions between the sisters. What's interesting to me, Jonathan, and I don't know if you felt this as well, is that Rumberger brings in things that are familiar. There's obviously, you know, the police procedural. There's the idea of the resentment of the sister who stayed and the sister who left. We've seen that with many different plays. Even though Ella did come in to help their father during his final struggle with cancer, she left pretty quickly afterward. And so there's Maisie, who's a single mom, another baby on the way. Uh, they're haunted also by the ghost, uh, you know, at least the, the psychic ghost of their mother who committed suicide. There are secrets that uh, the, the daughter, Olive, really wants to have more clarity on. And I think it's interesting, she too is a writer. So there's a whole thread of storytelling as a survival mechanism. Um, in particular, Olive tells her story to uh, their grandmother, who's listed in the program as Willa, but is always referred to as Nana throughout, played by the delightful Renee Lockett, who, we won't give this away, but has sort of an interesting story of her own that she reveals to her granddaughter. She's really the sounding board for her granddaughter's stories, which are sort of in a Stephen King mode, but with a feminist twist. Um, And I think that that's a really important balance in this play, that this is a young girl who has been you know, whose friends are disappearing around her as this serial killer makes makes his moves. She knows that there are secrets in the family involving her aunt, involving her grand, you know, her, you know, her grandmother, not her great her great grandmother who is still alive. And it's about how do I take all of this that is not very clear to me and give it clarity and give it a shape so that I can feel better able to confront it in the world. You know, I think it's about the role of storytelling, even if it's a scary story, and if I can control that and maybe things won't be quite as scary for me. Um, and I just feel like Rumberger has done a really good job of taking a lot of these things that seem somewhat familiar, but giving them just enough of a twist that I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. I didn't feel like it ever fell into utter predictability, even though there are elements that seem sort of archetypal throughout. You could figure out from fairly early on that we were never actually going to see the serial killer because sure. the play isn't really about the serial killing. But one of the tensions through the play was what is going to happen to the adolescent Olive, the daughter of the granddaughter who is still in high school and wants to grow up to be a writer because she's just the type of young woman that this guy, this murderer, is preying on. Will she or will she not become a victim? That was one of the tensions. And I won't give away what what happens. And and I think not seeing the murderer is a very deliberate there's a wonderful uh, section where Ella, they're, they're talking, I think, particularly about Ted Bundy, but then you could name any serial killer. It wouldn't matter. And she's talking about it to Robbie. You know, Ella's thing has not been so much working in the field. She's mostly been, a, you know, a desk jockey, a very good analyst, very good profiler. And one of the things she talks to with Robbie, and I found this a very emotionally moving section of the play, is reading about these women who are killed. And their names are forgotten. You know, one of them, she said, was a biochemist who might have gone on to become a great cancer researcher. You know, all their potential, everything they might have given to the world has been erased in a moment. Their names are forgotten. And I think that's one of the key points to not putting the killer on. Like, we're not going to give him that much power. We're not even going to give him a name. You're not going to put him center. We are going to talk about women's lives, the lives of these women in particular, and how they have been affected by violence or the threat of violence or the stories of violence that permeate their world. The Robbie, to whom Carrie referred, is the lone right. male 
character. He is the young police officer. He's 24 years old who is assigned to work with Ella. And uh, she teaches him a good deal about what it takes really to construct a profile and analyze what's going on with a serial killer. So that's, uh, it's not a fully developed relationship. Right. It certainly is not a romantic relationship. And, and another but, relationship yeah. that I, I liked where it went eventually, but it felt it kind of got off to a little bit of a false note, was between Ella and the local chief of police, Layla, played by Jennifer Glassie. There seemed to be this sort of playing into the, you know, big city, small town cop kind of dynamic, which again is one of those things we've seen in many different, you know, kinds of films and, and plays. Um, I didn't really get that. I, I didn't pick up on what um, Layla was suggesting, that Ella was coming in with like attitude or a sense of superiority. I think it needed to be presented so that as Ella's own backstory and her own past history of trauma comes out more, we could see the sympathy developing. It, it felt a little bit false to me right at the beginning, but um, eventually they do, you know, kind of bond. And Jennifer, yeah, Jennifer Glassie, as as, uh, as Layla, brings this sort of no-nonsense, you know, but kind of maternal quality <laughs> to her chief of police, um, which I thought was, you know, it, it took a while to get there, and I wasn't quite sure of the, uh, you know, as I said, the initial conflict between them. But I, I think it did, it, it did end up with this nice balance between these these two women you know she has she has seen some terrible things ella has seen some terrible things and also been through some terrible things so i think the the conflict really is 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 imposed by ella who who uh is is uh, her growing up in vero beach was not a happy time and she doesn't really want to be back there but she is and she projects a certain negative attitude, at least to, uh, to start with, uh, right. onto a lot of people and a lot of things. So there is that, yeah. too, and you have to wait for the layers to be unpeeled right. to get right. beyond and that. I, and I absolutely agree with you, Jonathan. It is refreshing to see a play where we're not really being spoon-fed. And again, I keep stressing this, even more so given that some of the outlines seem very familiar, but then Rumberger is such a skillful dramatist, and I think also the direction by John Gowlick and the, the performances across the ensemble are so well-developed that I, I was really, I, I don't want to say edge of my seat, but I kind of was. Like, where is this going? What's going to happen? Yeah. And um, I thought, uh, you know, just a beautiful uh, kind of crepuscular <laughs> setting, if you will, uh, designed, I think, by Chad Matthew, and it just felt like yeah, this is Florida, but this isn't really the sunny Florida people always talk about. This feels kind of like a sad, falling apart. They mentioned that the mall is closed. You know, you get the sense that this is a town that, has, that you know, much like the people in it, has seen some, you know, has seen some better days and has been through some dark stuff. So, yeah. uh, The Gift Theater now is in its second generation of artistic leadership, having gone through a transition about a year or so ago. And uh, I'm happy to report, I think I speak for both of us, that the, the company continues to live up to the high standards we've come to expect. Uh, it begins with the play itself, which we both admire, even though we think it could use a little adjustment and, and, and sharper focus. But we both admire the play itself, and it continues with a really fine production directed, as you said, carried by John Gallick. And there are two wonderful lead performances uh, in the roles of the two sisters, uh, played by uh, Sid Blackwell as Ella, the FBI agent, and Brittany Birch as Maisie, the one who stayed in the beach. Um, 
you know, one note, the Gift Theater is called Jefferson Park, home for all of its 21 years, but this production is at Theater Wit in the Belmont Avenue Theater right. District. The troupe outgrew its tiny 44-seat posted stamp storefront <laughs> on Milwaukee Avenue, but expects to return, I believe, to the Jefferson Park Hood yes. in a larger space in the not-too-distant future. Yes. I, I, I was talking to John Gallick a little bit in the lobby before the show, and he, he said, they're just at, you know, it's just the usual thing with dealing with the city and, you know, crossing T's and dotting I's, but they are in negotiations to take over a larger space in Jefferson Park, and they are committed to staying there, which is great because it, it's, you know, they're obviously, you know, a great cultural kind of flagship to have in that, that community. And I agree, Absolutely. yeah, and it, it's interesting. Gift was one of the companies that went to, a multi-headed artistic you know, leadership. Uh, Brittany Birch and Jennifer Glassy, as well as M. Joy Vino, are all kind of uh, the tripartite, you know, triumvirate of women who are now leading the company, um, which kind of meshes with what we've seen. The Steppenwolf having, you know, two artistic directors, Teatro Vista. It's an interesting model, and based on the results of this show, one that's serving them well. So two recommendations for The Locust. It's running at Gift Theater through November 19th. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm here with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Moving on, I wanted to touch on some theater news that, that came out this week. I was surprised when I, I found out that 16th Street Theater out in Berwyn was going to end operations or at least uh, change operations in, in some form at the end of uh, this current production. Did either of you hear anything about uh, 16th Street going away? Not, you know, though they had moved out of their North Berwyn Cultural Center home prior to the pandemic and were hoping, I think, to take over. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, wasn't a VFW hall or something like that, a, a larger space? They had, you know, kind of been making noises about that, but that clearly hasn't come to pass. Their newest show is being produced at the Madison Street Theater in Forest Park, and that will be their last full production. Yeah, yeah it's actually in Oak Park, but, you know, it's oh. a block either way. Or, oh, yeah. So okay. is the borderline. Between the the parks, right, oak and right. forest, yeah. um, I don't want to get the I don't want to get the oaks right. and the forest no, no, mad at each other. That never comes no, no. a good thing. Fifteenth <laughs> uh, Street Theater has been in business for seventeen years, most of them under the leadership of uh, founding artistic director and filmer, a wonderful director, still here in Chicago and still involved in theater, and uh, who really put this company on the map, working in close partnership with the Berlin Park District. And, she did wonderful productions of quite a wide range of material, uh, much of it, but, but not all of it, but, you know, kind of 50-50, acknowledging the presence in Berwyn and surrounding communities of a, of a large uh, Latinx population. And so there were uh, shows that were uh, theme appropriate to that potential audience, and they really did lovely work. They did move to a new location just a few months before the pandemic, they did a one production there, um, but this final production uh, called "Man and Moon," running only through through uh, November 13th, is at a rented space in Oak Park, and uh, I would assume that the ability or inability to to preserve to maintain the new home must be one of the one of the factors involved they, in it. They had just won a Jeff Award for, yeah. you know, the, we mentioned, I think, last time that the Jeffs had sort of a short-run category this year, and they won for uh, the work, their production of um, The yeah. Billboard by Natalie Moore, a longtime Chicago journalist and writer. So they've certainly, you know, they've been active. They had done, I think you and I had 
during the pandemic, I've reviewed at least one of their online shows. They do have a couple more, I think, virtual plays coming up. But yes, Man and Moon by Sienna Marilyn Ledger, which was a National New Play Network rolling world premiere. 16th Street was a member of the National New Play Network, um, the lo- one of the local theaters. Um, that is their last show. Um, I'm sad to hear it. What I find interesting and I'm a little puzzled by is on the note that they put up on their, their website from the board of directors, they have a little asterisk at the bottom that says, we are no longer a program of or in any way associated with the North Berwyn Park District. The North Berwyn Park District is the sole owner of the name 16th Street Theater and plans to create a children's theater with that name at some point in the future. And, you know, so please direct all future inquiries about that to North Berwyn Park District. To me, Jonathan, that's rather an unusual sort of arrangement. I don't know if you're, some, you know, if you have any insight as to how that would be that they that the board, you know, that this theater would continue under a different name, under the ownership had, of the North Burn Park District. Know, but I I didn't notice that. That must have been the mouse type at the end of the press release. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is interesting. But you know, it was as I said, a partnership. The 16th right. Street Theater. It was in a. Uh, Berwyn Park District building facility on 16th Street in Berwyn, um, and I imagine that this was a a a uh, uh, a friendly. I don't think they had a fight or or an argument. No, I no, yeah, no. I didn't mean to imply that. It's just, yeah, yeah. So and, and I'm not so sure it's kind of did, like the I theater think. as we know it is going away. The name will exist, and it will be a children's theater. Which I mean, certainly that's a that's a very good thing to have yeah. in in Berwyn in Ber- Berwyn yeah, as well. Yeah. There are a lot of a lot of kids out there. A lot of kids everywhere that can use some good yeah. theaters. So, well, you know, the 16th Street Theater, which we will miss, is not the only off-loop theater, which has just recently announced that it's ceasing operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is the Aston Rep Company, the Aston Repertory Theater. After 15 years, 2008, it will produce a two-play season this year, 2022-2023, and then it is going to close operations. The current production they're doing is Sam Shepard's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Very Child, which I have seen, like most of the shows Aston Rep has done, it is an ambitious play. It is one of those real plays, again, with depth and a good deal of puckish humor as well. So Barry Child, the second to the last production of Aston Rep, they're performing at the Edge Theater in uh, Edgewater on Broadway at uh, at Catalpa. It's a lovely space. Uh, And uh, Barry Child is continuing through November 19th. Then in the spring, Aston Rep is going to do one more play, uh, The Language Archive by Julia Cho in April and May, and then they're folding their tents honorably after 15 years. Um, They have not given specific reasons why. I suspect it's just because the artists are getting older and more mature, and they want to move on to other opportunities and challenges, plus the difficulty of fundraising. I hope we haven't, we didn't jinx it, Jonathan, because I seem to recall not that long ago, you and I were talking about the fact that we were rather, you know, pleasantly surprised that so many companies, most companies seem to have survived the shutdown. But since then, you know, Victory Gardens has had a big blow up and are no longer going to be producing new work, certainly. They're not, you know, they're going to be, if anything, a presenting organization and not a, not a, yep. you know, a full theater company. Eclipse and Underscore, 16th Street, Aston Rep. And, you know, for most cases, Victory Gardens being the large exception here, I would say, I, I agree with you. I think this is a case of companies just coming back and realizing, you know, 
like so many people, I think theater artists had some breathing time during the shutdown to think, is this really what I want to be doing? And running a small company is a thankless task, as anyone who's ever done it will tell you. Um, you're, you're wearing many hats. Maybe you get a chance to you know, get up on stage and do a part that you've always really wanted to do or champion a playwright that you quite love and admire. But it's, it's, it's difficult. It takes a lot of time. And as people get older, I think they do feel like maybe there's better ways that they can you know, contribute to the art form. Certainly, I don't think any of these artists are going to be going away in total. But they're, they're, we are starting to see some shifts you know, in the landscape now that we're about a year out. Uh, not Certainly, we're not yeah. post-pandemic. We can't say that. But a year out from people returning you know, to production and, and thinking, hmm, maybe, maybe this is a good time to just, you know, put a bow on it and move on to the next thing. Yeah. On the other hand, one semi-legendary Chicago theater has announced they are reopening after being shuttered for about three years, and that's the I.O. Yeah. Once, once upon a time known as Improv Olympics, but for some years, the I.O. It will reopen on uh, uh, November 3rd, in just a couple mm-hmm. of days, in its... Uh, 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 last space on uh, on Kingsbury, and uh, the whole space has been refurbished. The building and the company have new owners. Uh, they've brought in a couple of excellent and highly qualified improv comedy consultants, and on a rotating basis, they say they're going to host 20 different improv organizations, including organizations, including the Armando Diaz Experience, Stir Friday Night, and uh, a number of others that had right. good reputations yeah. here in Chicago. Yeah. It, it so that's closed, a welcome return. Yeah, absolutely. It had closed down early in the pandemic. Uh, Charna Halpern, who was one of the original owners, along with her late partner, Del Close, had you know, kind of closed. There had been some, you know, I think there had been some bad blood in the community about how some things have been managed there, but they do have, you know, it's a clean slate, and I.O. has always been such an important, perhaps not as nationally or internationally celebrated as Second City, but I would argue every bit is influential in their own way. And so it's interesting as Second City is talking about opening a New York branch, that I.O. is coming back strong on the Chicago front. And I think that I'm wishing them all the best. And, um, you know, I do hope that it will be a fruitful next chapter. All right. Well, we covered a lot. We're going to stop there. Happy Halloween. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, You're most Carrie. welcome. This is the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Some sad news to report, one of the last survivors of rock and roll's golden age, Jerry Lee Lewis, passed away on Friday. He died at his home in DeSoto County, Mississippi, with his wife Judith by his side. The rock and roll pioneer behind hits like Great Balls of Fire and Whole Lot of Shaking going on. Sustained a long career, even surviving some personal scandals that likely would have ended most contemporary performers' career today. The man known as The Killer was 87. This is WDCB 90.9 and 90.7 FM. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. A group of skeleton drummers invited to perform at the White House run into some famous ghosts in the new children's book, The Most Haunted House in America. The book was written by Evanston resident Jarrett Dapier, 
The premise was inspired by the author's own once-in-a-lifetime experience of performing at a White House Halloween party several years ago. I caught up with Dapier ahead of the most haunted house in America's release to talk about his experience at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in 2009 and how it sparked an idea for this book. You were part of like a drum group that got to perform at the White House? Yeah, in 2008... I was in a show at Looking Glass Theater called Hephaestus, which was a Greek mythology tale told through circus. And I and another drummer named Rick were two live drummers who played throughout the show as a lot of the circus acts uh, performed. And so that sort of introduced me into the world of circus drumming. And I got connected to local performers and producers who do circus work for private events. So Rick and I did a lot of drumming together after that show concluded. And in October of 2009, I dropped off my daughter at preschool and I'm walking through a park in Evanston and I get a call from Rick and he says, hi, would you like to drum at the White House with me? (laughs) And I was stunned and I just was speechless and said, yes, of course. He said, because Red Moon Theater Company, now defunct, but at that time, you know, very much thriving, uh, was invited by the White House events team to bring performers to perform at a Halloween celebration at the White House. And they want to have three drummers. So they had two picked. And then they said to Rick, hey, help us find another one. So Rick gave me a call for which I will forever be thankful. So two weeks later, we uh, maybe it was a week later, we were on a plane to go drum at the White House on Halloween. It was that quick of a turnaround? Like yeah, a it week? was very brief. And actually, I was sick a couple days before the trip. And I've never, I've never imbibed more green tea in my life to try and get better fast. What was the experience like drumming on the White House lawn? We were ushered into the White House to get into costume, and it was so fast because, you know, you go through security, and then they usher us through this side door, and I'm walking through a hallway looking at all these portraits of the Obamas and trying to take in as much of the White House as I can in the 10 seconds that I had because then they ushered us down some stairs and into a green room which was, could have been, you know, anywhere. We get in a skeleton costume and then they're like, all right, it's time. And then they uh, line us up and bring us up outside, but we got to walk through the White House out the front door to get to our drums. You know, we had maybe five minutes to get used to the three different stations for the drummers. Um, We were in our skeleton costumes and then they opened the gates and people were lined up, I don't know how far, to come and trick or treat at the White House. Uh Uh-huh. I did take a moment to look around, and I did that a couple times throughout the experience because I reminded myself you have to see as much as you can so you can remember. And one thing that struck me throughout was how incredible the other performers looked that they had invited from different cities and towns all over. And we drummed for two and a half hours straight. We would take maybe a 10-second break at certain intervals to change stations on the drum cart. It was amazing. Did you get a chance to meet the president and the first lady? I did not. So that was sort of the question. That was the the uh, $100 question for everyone is what happens after trick-or-treating? Do we get to go inside? Because everyone knew that after trick-or-treating, there was a party inside for military families and White House staff and their families. And none of us knew which performers were going to go inside to be at that party. 
And so everybody's sort of wondering what happens. And once the drumming was over and they shut the front doors to the White House, um, we were led by staff to these tents that were set up on the side of the White House to take off our makeup. And so we were looking at each other thinking, I guess this means we're not going in. Supposedly, Obama said the drummers rocked. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> so you have this uh, amazing experience in, in the Halloween of 2009. What led to the, the creation of this book that's coming out now? Well, it always stayed in my mind as an experience that was utterly enchanting and full of joy and full of a sense of community because of the presence of all of the families and local children. So it always had that resonance in my mind as a magical experience that was really unlike anything I've ever gone through before. And it, w But it wasn't until I read Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming, that I realized, oh, I should turn this into something. When I read Becoming, I nearly fell out of my chair when I read the part in the book where she details the origins of that very night she mentions the skeleton musicians in the chapter. And so I was just so excited. And I loved the book Becoming regardless. But the fact that there's this couple pages where she talks through this story was just amazing to me. That's when I went back to the manuscript and wrote the story of the skeleton drummers. So something that I really wasn't familiar with until I started flipping through your book and then talking to you was that I guess there's a lot of ghost lore and myths uh, attached to the White House. There's a, a lot of reported ghost sightings at, at the White House, and you've made some of those elements part of the book. Is that something that developed later as you were kind of fleshing out the idea? My original idea for the book was about real skeletons who are, are drummers and get invited by the First Lady of the United States to perform at a Halloween celebration at the White House. And they take a journey underground, pop up on the White House lawn with all of their drums and play, and then go inside for the party that occurs after trick-or-treating. And the editor who eventually bought it at Abrams Kids really pushed me to explore more than just my own experience, because a lot of what I wrote into the book was sort of what I've already described here, like what I saw, you know, on the on the lawn, the other performers and the sort of magical images. And so I was sort of stuck and I just started looking up pictures of the White House. And I think I, I landed on a website that is independent of the White House, but it talks, it does a lot of chronicling the history of the White House. And I think maybe I was searching for White House Haunted, White House Halloween, but I eventually landed on a website that detailed the history of the many ghost sightings and hauntings that have been reported at the White House, especially since the end of the Civil War. And so I started playing with the idea that when the skeleton drummers go inside, they actually start to encounter real ghosts. And the real ghosts that they run into are ghosts that people over the years have reported seeing or interacting with or encountering at some point. Um, and I just hit the ground running with that idea because there are so many ghosts that people say that they've seen at the White House. Mm -hmm. And uh, trying to incorporate in as many as I could, um, I, I um, 
started having, you know, portraits come alive and uh, the, the subjects of the portraits step out of the frame. And the story became that after trick-or-treating, they go inside and the skeleton drummers take a wrong turn, end up in the Red Room, which is a famous room in the White House, where there is an actual ghost party occurring. And the skeleton drummers become very frightened and uh, try to find their way out of the White House, but they're lost. And so they're running through the White House and then they keep encountering more and more ghosts. In the end, they reach the party um, hosted, you know, by the president and first lady. But it's a party that is both the living and the dead all together. Mm. There's a whole slew of of ghost sightings of people that um, most listeners would recognize. The the most prominent and the most oft-cited ghost in the White House is uh, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. And there's some great stories um, He's been seen repeatedly looking outside the yellow room, um, his hands behind his back as though deep in thought, looking out the window, um, which reportedly he used to do, um, especially during the Civil War when he was distraught and carrying the weight of so much uh, horror on his shoulders. And um, people have seen him standing at the window there. Winston Churchill claimed that he was staying at the White House, got out of the bath, walked into whatever suite he was staying in, and there stood Abraham Lincoln. And Winston Churchill was naked. And, you know, apocryphal or not, he said to Abraham Lincoln, I'm sorry, Mr. President, but it appears you have me at a disadvantage. (laughs) Sounds Um, like something he would say. (laughs) Yeah. And then Queen Wilhelmina II is the other famous story. She says that she heard a knocking at the bedroom door at two in the morning, and she opened it, and Abraham Lincoln was standing right there, which to me is a very creepy image. Are you going to send a copy to the former first lady? I have already. Have you heard anything? No, because I sent it yesterday. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that'll be exciting. I hope so. I hope so. The book is The Most Haunted House in America. Jared, it's always a pleasure having you in. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me again. That was Jarrett Dapier. He's the author of the new picture book, The Most Haunted House in America. It's available almost everywhere. You can find children's books. You can find more information about this book and Jarrett's other writings at jarrettdapier.com. You're tuned in to WDCB. This is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. In case you haven't heard, Halloween is tomorrow. I was thinking about a Halloween tradition I had growing up. My little brother and I would go trick-or-treating and stay out as late as we were allowed. And we'd come back and my parents would order some type of takeout and we would all sit and watch a, a scary movie together. And I have this one memory in particular of a Halloween night when I was like 10 or 11. And the original Fright Night was on local TV. Fright Night came out in 1985. If you're not familiar, it starred uh, Roddy McDowell. He's like a fake TV vampire hunter. But then these teenagers come to him for help. There are some real vampires in town. It's actually pretty good. I remember my parents actually kind of liking it. So it stuck out to me. As an adult, I've tried to continue this tradition of watching a scary movie on Halloween. I 
I no longer go trick-or-treating. And uh, I know I'm not the only one uh, with plans to watch something scary on Halloween night. I thought it would be fun to get recommendations on some new horror films that came out this year. So I've invited longtime friend of the show, RogerEbert.com, senior editor and film critic extraordinaire, uh, Nick Allen, to join us with thoughts <laughs> on some fresh horror meat. Nick, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You've put together a, a list of three of your favorites, and we'll just dive right in. The, the first film we're going to talk about is called Barbarian, and I, I watched this last night, so it's fresh in my mind. Uh, written and directed by Zach Kreger. There aren't a ton of big stars in this. The most recognizable face would be Justin Long, uh, who most mm-hmm. people would probably know from Jeepers Creepers or a number of comedies and he did a bunch of rom-coms for a while if you are going to see barbarian the less you know the better that being said yeah. uh nick how would you describe the premise uh i would say it's a, a bit deceptive um it's kind of like a like a jack-in-the-box kind of movie where it kind of is about the slow burn building up and then something kind of popping out but the general plot of it begins with a, a double booked airbnb in detroit and the situation of uh, this woman named tess She's in there. She's uh, up there for a job interview. She's trying to stay at this Airbnb, and it's already got uh, somebody staying there, um, played by Bill Skarsgård. So right there, you have Bill Skarsgård's face as kind of like, oh, do I kind of trust him? <laughs> um, they start to uh, figure out what they should do, so to speak. Because, yeah, yeah, we definitely don't want to get into spoilers about it, but I think it's a good, awkward setup. You know? Right. Uh, a nightmare we all we all wouldn't want to experience. A double book Airbnb, you get there late at night, somebody already there and then what do you do yeah double booked airbnb nightmare for sure double booked airbnb in a bad neighborhood in detroit uh, extra yeah extra scary yeah. and i actually have a, a clip here from barbarian that we can listen to in this scene two of the main characters who have a uh, double booked this uh, airbnb house are having this awkward late night conversation it's bill skarsgård as keith and georgina campbell as tess uh hey uh, the laundry's still in wash, um, uh, but I thought, um, well, I'm wide awake, so, so I, um, it's gonna be a bit not. I thought I'm gonna have some of this here wine, but I didn't want to open it before um, you got out of the shower because I, I know so you didn't drink your tea, and would, well, I totally get that by the way. I mean, you don't know me, and and this is a really weird situation. It makes total sense, um, but I thought that. Um, you know, you might want some of this, but if I open it while you weren't here, that um, that um, I'm 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 sorry, I'm rambling. Jesus Christ! Um, I thought you wouldn't want any if you didn't see me open it, so I waited. I'm good. That was a clip from the new film Barbarian. Uh, we heard from. Bill Skarsgård there being really awkward. And then at the end there, Georgina Campbell, both of them star in this film. Horror films, uh, you know, sometimes are criticized for being too formulaic. If you watch enough of them, you can start to predict what's going to happen next. And in my opinion, the best horror films break away from that traditional formula while at the same time they they tap into like these real things that we fear. So I, I think Barbarian does both of those things really well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say uh, also it's a movie that j- tries to be genuinely scary, and there's not a lot of movies that seem to really kind of do that. That really kind of uh, go for that uh, that discomfort, that disturbing sense, you know, that unease, and it does. Uh, I think it achieves some pretty good, some pretty good jolts. You know, I, I heart was racing when I first saw it. And that was uh, 
it's always great when a, a labored production can still make you feel like you're in this darkened passageway or you could say jumps around a bit in an effective way. But I also heard made it difficult to get made. Just because of like budget things? No, the, uh, that the, and this is not like a spoiler, but that, um, that the script kind of jumps to different characters later on in the story um, in a way that's not natural, right? That's very effective watching it, but uh, I read somewhere that Gregor had a hard time getting someone to take the movie because of those. I, I, I called them like kind of like ambitious changes in the story that also uh, come from like really winding you up. And then once you're at a moment when you need to catch your breath and you're kind of flung to a whole different time zone or a different period, you know, it's really effective in that way. Yeah, yeah. We're being very vague on purpose because yeah. if, if you are if you are going to see it, you you kind of just yeah you need to go in with a title like Barbarian. You might come in with preconceived notions, but uh, right. just leave those behind and and sit down. Uh, it has a, a theatrical release, but it's also available to stream on HBO Max. So if you yeah. you have that, you can you can see it there. I it's on your list, and I definitely uh, recommended it as well. Next up, a film titled Watcher. Not to be confused with the uh, Netflix series The Watcher, right. which I, I really didn't care for, but um, I'm not a big, uh, not a big Ryan Murphy fan. Uh, yeah, I heard it was not so good. But I've heard a lot of stuff he's been doing lately. It's not so good. But Watcher, yeah, I did enjoy it. The, the movie. Also had me kind of on the edge of my seat, though. Uh, yeah, you used the term a uh, slow burn for Barbarian. This is. I feel yeah. like even a, a slower burn and, and much more subtle until you get to the the end. Yeah, definitely uh, the pick for if you kind of want more atmosphere and you're ready to kind of watch something that's not about um, a lot of big jump scares, but a lot of like unsettling uh, developments or unsettling moments or questions. I remember it's all about kind of Micah Monroe's performance as this woman who is uh, certain uh, but cannot prove that she's being watched by somebody from a distance, so to speak, especially. Uh, from across her apartment, her new apartment. She moved into in Bucharest with her husband, and it's about kind of her alienation going into this experience, but then also even more so with this growing paranoia that the movie really wrestles with in very interesting and exciting ways, but yes, in a slow burn that is uh, creepy more than it is outwardly scary until the end, which I think uh, is pretty good itself. Yeah. The ending pays off. Yeah, the ending pays off. Worth noting, it's uh, also uh, like about casting with, you know, Bill Skarsgård kind of being an unsettling face. You're not sure what to do with. Vern Gorman as the uh, soccer person is uh, very effective. I mean, talk about quite a you know, <laughs> very uh, illustrative mug, you know, um, that is used very well in this story. It's very effective. It's very effective performance from Micah Monroe and also from The Watcher. And Micah Monroe, for uh, folks that are interested, she's been in, in some things. Uh, I think she broke out on the scene with another indie horror film, It Follows. Yeah. Like back in 2014. If uh, if you're just tuning in, this is the art section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with film critic Nick Allen about some of his favorite scary movies of the past year. And the next film he wants to highlight is called Resurrection. And this was released a little earlier in the year after getting some buzz on the festival circuit. I remember reading a, a capsule review for Resurrection in the spring, and it was really vague um, on purpose, but it, it hooked me. I was like, what is this movie about? So right. I saw it as soon as it got you know, distribution. It stars Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth, and the dread in Resurrection comes from a deeper, darker place compared to the, yeah. the previous two films we discussed. Uh, maybe yeah. not as uh, accessible. It's out there. 
and maybe uh, challenging to describe without giving too much away. Right. Yeah. Again. <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I would like to recommend it. Certainly, this is not another jump scare kind of movie, but it is like if you like Thread or a big like WTF, what the you know what the heck is going on kind of story that's done a lot of it through like incredible performances from Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth, creating this story that you're learning a lot about this history that they have as a former married couple that the dynamics are nightmarish but very real and uh but then play out in this modern time um again trying to be vague <laughs> yeah but uh, extremely well made and also one of those movies where you have to admire a lot of courage in storytelling to hold certain scenes for so long or like rebecca hall has an amazing monologue uh, that goes on for like 10 minutes and you're like is this is what she's talking about real and yeah. Very effective ending as well, too. But one of those movies that when I saw it, I was like, whatever this guy is making next, I want to see it. Yeah, that monologue you referenced, yeah, that definitely, <laughs> that's like a, a turning point for me because of the filmmakers, you know, he's dropping hints, uh, but it's very like vague and mysterious about what the connection is between these two characters. And then she drops right. this backstory, which like... I have a I have a young child at home, and so this, some of like what in, is in her story is like wow, um, kind of hit me differently. Yep. Not, I mean, it'll hit everyone yes differently too, whether you have a kid or not. So, did you see this in a theater? I did. I I saw it when it streamed as part of the Chicago Critics Film Festival in May, I believe it was. So I had the chance to see it at the Music Box with a a crowd of people who like loved it or did not like it. <laughs> I was gonna ask, how did the yeah. How did the crowd react? Uh, I think my best kind of telling is that like I sat with somebody who afterwards they were weeping, and then I saw with somebody after who was like they did not feel anything. Oh, okay. Or like that they were that uh, that they uh, did kind of didn't understand feel the horror from it. Okay, um, okay. I that was very telling. Yeah, um, yeah. I watched it with my wife, and then I think we both were just like. Like whoa, and then we're just like we need to, we both need to like think about this for for like a night before we talk about it. Yeah, oh, I love that. I love yeah, I love that. But then I also imagine there was a lot to talk about. For sure, for sure. So definitely recommend it as like if you like you know horror filmmaking that gives you a lot to talk about, whether you kind of go with it or not. Um, it's very rich in that way, and that almost has become more of an immediate value than just like is it scary, right? Exactly. Uh, this one's like, no, this one's creepy, and, and really, it kind of goes to what horror can do for us to like go to these extremes to talk about real-life experiences, but reflect it back. And I think this is like the best example of that. So I, I looked it up, and it appears Resurrection is available to rent uh, on Amazon Prime. I don't know if that's exclusive, but um, most people seem to have access to Amazon these days. So if you want to see Resurrection, you can rent it on, on Amazon Prime. And Watchers are also available to to rent on most video on demand platforms. So that's uh, that's Nick's list. I also wanted to to get his thoughts really quickly yeah. on uh on another uh horror film that, that recently came out. It seems like this uh this film Smile is getting a, a lot of uh, attention as a, a mainstream horror film. What did you think of Smile? Yeah, uh so yeah, Smile is an, is um it's like hugely successful. <laughs> and there is really is a still a market for mainstream horror like this. Smile is definitely a product of just like mainstream jump scares and kind of not and like more direct attempts at throwing the audience and so forth. But it seems to be very effective. It's very successful. 
the movie has gone kind of viral with they had funny advertising where people were like doing the smile, creepy smile thing in the movie at like baseball games, which is really funny. But it seems to have kind of gone viral. And I would say it's mostly deserving of, uh, of that success. Uh, it's definitely not reinventing anything, but it is harnessing, number one, the way that uh, Frozen Smile is very discomforting. Uh, like in a picture, it's okay, but someone to do it, it automatically becomes a threat, kind of like a clown. It's, it is that same ideology of a clown movie. And uh, it's basically about this curse that's passed on in which person A watches person B die by suicide grizzly, in some grisly form. Then person A has uh, like is traumatized by that. And then later on, they will do something in front of somebody else with a big smile on their face. And the movie is about this kind of curse of it, working like the ring or it follows, that kind of stuff, while then um, trying to package it to a, a modern or jump scare machine. But the uh, third act I thought was great. So that's kind of, <laughs> I, uh, if, all, long, all long winded to say that I did enjoy the movie and that it really ramps up to something very effective in the third act when it gets away from trying to make you scared about like an immediate jump cut or something. And uh, I can see why it's so popular. Uh, my friend saw it last weekend and said it was just full of teens like Snapchatting uh, themselves during it. And I could like that made sense to me um, <laughs> because it is like a viral kind of participatory act and stuff. But uh, yeah, if you're going to see movie theaters and you have to smile, yeah, that would definitely be a solid choice. There is something, yeah, like discomforting about, yeah, like someone who gives you this smile there was this uh, horror film that came out a few years ago now with Lucy Hale uh, called uh, Truth or Dare, and it's... Oh, yeah, I did not see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but it's got, like, a similar thing is, like, essentially the person's face, like, turns into this, like, creepy smile when it's, like, their turn to give the, the S the truth or give the dare, and uh, only, right. the, only the person whose turn it is can see it. So I felt like this smile is, you know, riffing off of uh, the creepiness of like a, a smiling face like that. But uh, the, the uh, clever uh, marketing uh, tactics with the uh, playoff baseball and having people in yes. the, the line of camera with these uh, creepy smiles on, yeah, very effective. Yeah, yeah, uh, very clever uh, and very and very telling of uh, how this movie can kind of pass on just by a gesture. You know, it can go viral. So there we go. If you're looking for some frights the films we talked about are barbarian that's available on hbo max also in some theaters watcher available to to rent on demand and resurrection uh, available to rent on amazon prime and then the, the last movie we talked about smile is in theaters right now lots of spooky things out there to, to see and of course, Nick reviews more than horror films. He reviews all sorts of different types of movies. You can find all his reviews at rogerebert.com. Nick, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for uh, making time to talk with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, The artssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Have a happy Halloween. Stay safe out there. Thanks for listening. No running around!